Welcome to Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. This week, we continue our examination of our favorite episodes season by season from our favorite Star Trek series, Deep Space Nine. After our review, we will end our podcast with the latest Star Trek news. So, Gary, let's begin with the synopsis of our Season 3 pick, Past Tense Parts 1 and 2. Sure. The U.S. Defiant enters orbit around Earth, where Commander Sisko and his staff have been asked to speak to the annual Starfleet Symposium. Sisko, Dr. Bashir, and Jadzia Dax ready themselves to transport down to San Francisco, but a transporter anomaly accidentally sends them back in time in Earth's history to the year 2024. Sisko and Bashir find themselves on city pavement, awakened by two uniformed security men carrying shotguns. Since Sisko and Bashir have no identity cards, they are treated as vagrants and taken to a sanctuary district. The sanctuary is a walled-off ghetto used to contain the poor, infirm, mentally disabled, and anyone else deemed unable to, to support themselves. Sisko, a student of Earth's history, informs Bashir that they are in a pivotal moment in the timeline. He believes that they have arrived a few days before the beginning of the Bell Riots, a violent incident in the sanctuary districts in which Citizens rebelled against their inhumane treatment. Dozens would be killed. However, Gabriel Bell, the leader of the demonstration, became a hero due to his self-sacrifice in protecting a group of hostages. Due to the riots, the wider world was exposed to the cruel conditions of the sanctuary districts, leading to a a transformational change in public attitudes. Sisko warned Bashir they must not do anything to upset these events for fear of changing the timeline. Meanwhile, Jazia, who had been separated from Sisko and Bashir, finds herself in a different circumstance mm-hmm. as she is found by wealthy media businessman named Chris Brenner. He assumes she is a person of privilege and provides her with a place to stay, clothing, and a new ID card. She tells him she had been separated from her friends and wants to find them. When she learns about the sanctuary, she tells him they may have ended up over there. Sisko and Bashir are able to obtain period-appropriate clothing and food using a ration card. However, conditions in the sanctuary are so desperate that some of the residents prey upon others. When a gang attempts to take Sisko and Bashir's ration carts, they resist. A man comes to their aid and is killed. When Sisko learns the man was Gabriel Bell, he takes on his identity knowing he must attempt to replicate Bell's heroism during the riots or the timeline will be drastically altered. Back on the USS Defiant, Major Kira, Chief O'Brien, and Odo lose contact with the Federation. They soon make the grim realization they are the only Federation ship remaining. Believing the landing party must have altered the timeline in some way, O'Brien and Kira try to predict the time period 
the team may have landed so they could possibly find a way to restore the timeline. A riot ensues in the sanctuary. A group, including Cisco and Bashir, storm a processing center and take hostages, including two uniformed security men who brought them to the sanctuary. Bashir and, and Cisco attempt to keep the hostages safe from harm while trying to get word out to the wider world of the shoddy sanctuary conditions. However, communication systems are blocked by authorities. Still, impersonating Bell, Cisco, and the sanctuary resident Michael Webb attempts to negotiate for better conditions with the governor's representative, but their efforts appear to be futile. Jazeel learns of the riots by watching media reports and decides to go to the sanctuary to find her crewmates. After her arrival, she is taken prisoner by some of the residents and brought to the processing center where she is reunited with Cisco and Bashir. She lets them know she had a comm badge, but it was taken by one of the residents. Cisco tells her it is imperative that she retrieve her comm badge and f- try to find a way to open a communications channel so the residents can tell their stories. With Bashir's help, Jazia retrieves her comm badge and heads back to Brenner to convince him to open up a communications channel to the sanctuary. At first, he is reluctant to do so, but relents. Bashir rejoins Cisco at the processing center, where the commander has kept the hostages from harm. However, negotiations have broken down with the governor. A SWAT team is sent in, and several sanctuary residents, including Webb, are killed. In return for keeping them safe, one of the uniformed security men agrees to play Cisco and Bashir's identity cards on residents who had been killed so the two would not be linked to the riots. Kara and O'Brien finally choose the correct date to locate their fellow crewmates. All return to the Defiant and find themselves in the 24th century with the timeline restored with one minor historical change. Gabriel Brell is still cited as a hero, but if one were now to access an image of this man, one would find Benjamin Sisko's picture. Oh, wow. You know, I'm curious. I wonder what Chris Brenner, what gives Chris Brenner the impression that Jazia is privileged and has all those rights. Well, I think you're going to talk about that a little bit later. Mm, I just, it's, it's odd, you know? It's just <laughs> odd. He's so willing to accept her at face value. That's you know right. what I mean? So let's move on to the credits. Past Tense Part 1 was written by Robert Hewitt Wolf and directed by Riza Badea. Born in Connecticut, Wolf is a television producer and screenwriter best known for his work as a writer on Deep Space Nine and producing the series. Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda. <laughs> that was one of those ideas that he has shoved in the back of, right. of, a, of a closet that Majel found as a way to try to make some money. That's correct. Yeah. That is correct. In 1992, Wolf sold the story for a fistful of data to the Star Trek uh, Next Generation series. His writing of the screenplay was the, for the episode secured him a place on the creative staff of the series Deep Space Nine, which made its debut the following year. Wolf worked on Deep Space Nine for five years. During that time, 
He wrote or co-wrote over 30 episodes in a wide range of styles. These included action-packed episodes with high story arc importance, such as The Way of the Warrior and Call to Arms, dramatic episodes that focused on character development, such as The Wire, which we which was our honorable mention last for the last season. Yes. And Hard Times, another honorable mention we'll be talking about later. Okay. And comedies such as Family Business or Little Green Men. <laughs> Iranian-born Rezi Badii was a veteran director of dozens of series such as Get Smart, wow. Mission Impossible, The Rockford Files, Beretta, Mannix, Starsky and Hutch, The Six Million Dollar Man, The Incredible Hulk, Cagney and Lacey, Hawaii Five O, and The Mary Tyler Moore Show. That sounds like my viewing habits in the 1970s. Right, exactly. I, I definitely saw all those shows. In fact, during his lifetime, he set a record for the number of television episodes directed. From 1994 to 1996, he directed five episodes of Deep Space Nine, including Civil Defense, Past Tense Part One, Life Support, Visionary, and Paradise Lost. He died in 2011 at the age of 81. Past Tense Part 2 was written by Ira Stephen Bear and Renee Echeverria and directed by returning champion <laughs> Jonathan Frakes. He is a graduate of Lehman College in New York City where he studied mass communication and theater. Although offered a playwriting scholarship at Brandeis University, Bear instead elected to move to Los Angeles and pursue a career in writing comedy for television and film. However, as it turned out, he became best known for television drama. Bear's relationship with Star Trek began in 1987 as producer for Star Trek The Next Generation during its third season. At the end of the season, Bear left the series to pursue screenwriting. He returned to Star Trek in 1993 as a supervising producer for the pilot of Deep Space Nine and became a co-executive producer in the second season. His diverse talents and experiences as a writer led him to the position of executive producer late in the third season. Bear played a key role in the development of the Ferengi. Yeah, he did. He, he basically, you know, exonerated them. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> and, 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 uh, he did a good job with them. Sure did. After graduating from Duke University in 1984, Rene Echeverria moved to New York City to pursue a career in theater. After gaining experience on the stage, he wrote a spec script for Star Trek Next Generation called The Offspring. He became a story editor for the show's sixth season and executive story editor during its seventh and final season, for which the show received an Emmy nomination for Best Dramatic Series. But it did not win. Right. In 1993, he took the job of co-supervising producer on DS9. His 30-plus episodes for, of Star Trek have won him a Humanitas nomination, a Peabody nomination, two Hugo nominations, and a NASA Vision Award for Best Depiction of Humanity's Future in Space. In 1994, he received a Special Achievement Award from the Latino media organization Hamas. 
Jonathan Frakes is well known to Star Trek fans initially as an actor in his role as Commander Will Riker on The Next Generation. As a director, he held 28 episodes over seven series. Those include The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, Picard, Discovery, and Strange New Worlds. He also directed two films, Star Trek First Contact and Star Trek Insurrection. Well, First Contact was good. <laughs> yeah, no, you're not a fan of Insurrection. No, not at all. Okay, well, you know. You, you, you don't like seeing Picard mambo around his, his, his quarters? I have chosen to strike any memory of that movie out of my mind. He's, so. he's a sexy man in that one. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying, you know. Anyway, so let's move on to the review of the, of the episode at hand. Okay. The theme of past tense is inequality. San Francisco in 2024 paints America as a nation overwhelmed by a simultaneous growth in poverty and apathy. No solution to the problem is offered other than to shield the affluent and employed by protecting them from being reminded of the unemployed and unhoused. The problem is shown in the most harsh and depressing terms for Star Trek. Before 1995, it had been a franchise that had only addressed the failures of humanity in the abstract, never in such graphic ways. Earth had a World War III, but how it reached that point, as well as the aftermath from it, were rarely talked about or shown. In a capitalistic society, a person's worth is measured by their accumulated wealth. One's power and access to opportunities are connected to it. It has felt strange looking back on this fictional depiction of America in 2024 during the closing weeks of 2023. Today, we can see many of the, of the similar conditions depicted in the story. A growing wealth gap politicians who describe aid to the poor as a handout but have no problem calling for another tax cut for the rich and cities overwhelmed with the homeless. One might think the Deep Space Nine writers did an excellent job of predicting America 30 years in the future, but the irony of past tense and science fiction in general is that it rarely predicts the future. More often, it reflects present conditions ignored or overlooked. Now let's move on to the analysis. Past tense parts one and two are partly an homage to earlier time-traveling episodes, much like The City on the Edge of Forever. But it also reminds us of other original series episodes that made a moral statement, such as Errand of Mercy or A Taste of Armageddon. Each of those episodes ask us to reflect on the conditions depicted in a fictional world and recognize similarities that exist in our own. The story is, is the writer's social commentary on equity in the late 20th century America. San Francisco that they create exists within a plutocracy where the wealthy elite holds significant power and influence over the political system and decision-making processes. 
the concentration of wealth and economic control in the hands of a few individuals or families leads to a system that favors the interests of the wealthy at the expense of the majority. Past tense presents us with a future that resembles the worst living conditions as envisioned by George Orwell or Charles Dickens. It shows how complicit those people are who ignore the multi-pronged problems that grow out of poverty. The sanctuary districts show us the damage unemployment, homelessness, and food insecurity can do to the human spirit. They can lead to despair, cynicism, mental health issues, and exploitation, all of which are depicted in the episodes as well. Mental health is introduced by the character Clint Howard plays in part two, and exploitation is personified by B.C., the street tough. He and his ghosts terrorize the residents in Sanctuary District A. We see that Dax is separated from Cisco and Bashir by only a few feet. Yet, when they awaken, they will find that the world treats them strikingly different ways. Cisco and Bashir end up in a sanctuary district, lacking appropriate identification cards to keep them from being rounded up by the local authorities. Dax, who looks like a young white woman, is lucky enough to be found by a wealthy member of the media who gives her new clothes, food, and introduces her to the elite of San Francisco society without anything to prove her worthiness other than her youth, attractiveness, and skin color. So let's look a little deeper into identity. Past tense plays a subtle game with race. It's not mentioned directly, but it is presented visually. It begins when Cisco, Dax, and Bashir, the three members of the away team, find themselves stuck in the year 2024. Cisco, a black man, along with his South Asian crew member, Dr. Julian Bashir, and the white operations officer, Jetzia Dax, must contend with unfamiliar racism, classism, violence, and Americans' apparent apathy toward human suffering. The race and gender of everyone they meet in 2024 was deliberately chosen and is intentional. In the district, Cisco and Bashir encounter an Irish male security officer named Vin and his Latinx partner, Bernardo. Also, Lee, a sanctuary social worker who is taken hostage, was played by an African-American actress. Each one of them represents U.S. communities who experience ethnic, racial, or gender-based discriminations who would have found themselves seeking economic security in service to the affluent by keeping the unemployed, poor, and disabled under control in inhumane conditions. On the other hand, Jazia's benefactor is a wealthy white media mogul. His friends are equally affluent and apathetic toward the plight of the sanctuary residents. The fact that one of his affluent friends is an Asian man and another is a black woman demonstrates how easily it is for money to blind one to the needs of others. Cisco is presented as an expert on 21st century history. As such, he is initially conscious of adhering to the temporal prime directive. The commander tries to explain to 
Bashir how things got so bad with the statement. It's not that they don't care. It's that they've given up. Where Bashir is quick to condemn 21st century America, Cisco encourages the doctor to adopt to a longer view of history. According to Cisco, the protests and social uprising in San Francisco sanctuary districts plays a catalytic role in triggering events that will prove transformative for the nation. The growing homelessness crisis leads to what will be known as the Bell Riots, named after the historic protagonist Gabriel Bell, an African-American man who dies during the protest and becomes a national hero. The riots and their aftermath spur humans to become a society of people that will form the enlightened United Federation of Planets by 2161. To ensure that enlightenment happens after Bell is killed, Sisko abandons the temporal edict and begins acting as if he is Bell himself. Gabriel Bell's identity gives the two-part story an uncanny air of familiarity. In the plot, Bell is more the inspiration for actions rather than the activist himself. He serves as a reminder that all too frequently, social change in America has been purchased by the sacrificial death of a black person. This sad tradition started with a black man, Crispus Attucks, who was the first person to die in the Revolutionary War. Young Emmett Till's death first turned his mother into an activist, and then she used her tragedy to move other people to seek racial justice. The bombing death of four little black girls in a Birmingham church put a spotlight on the evils of racial hatred. And the deaths of Martin Luther King Jr., Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and too many others have had to serve as a long line of reminders that a nation claiming to be based on the ideals of liberty and justice has not always lived up to those principles. Likewise, in past tense, it's the memory of Gabriel Bell who makes America remember its core principles. Sadly, the remembrance won't last long, as we've learned that it's hard to maintain such lofty ideals in a world that rewards selfishness and greed. Okay, now let's move on to the influences. And specifically, let's look at the homeless crisis in California. Okay. Writers Ira Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf were motivated by the growing homelessness crisis in the 1990s, specifically in the cities of Los Angeles and San Francisco. At the time the episodes were written, Wolf's wife worked as a psychotherapist serving the homeless and mentally ill. Ira Stephen Bear said what convinced him to create these episodes was walking through Palisades Park in Santa Monica and seeing all the homeless people there. In a 2012 interview on the subject of Deep Space Nine and his involvement with it, Wolf asserted, They're still there. It hasn't changed. We weren't being predictive. We were just being observant. In the early 1990s, San Francisco and Los Angeles were dealing with a growing homeless community. Both cities chose leaders that chose a harsher solution than had been used in the past. Los Angeles elected Republican businessman Richard Reardon, while San Francisco elected Frank Jordan, the city's former police chief, 
as their new mayor. Jordan introduced the Matrix program, a strategy using police to forcibly clear homeless people from the streets and steer them into health and housing services. During the first six months of the program, police issued 6,000 citations for quality of life misdemeanors. Critics accused the program of using resources on punitive enforcement of quality of life laws that generally only affect the homeless community, like sleeping in, uh, in public and loitering, instead of promoting services to aid homeless people. The approach basically criminalized the poor and merely managed homelessness rather than doing anything to prevent it. In Los Angeles, Mayor Reardon launched a plan to shuttle the homeless to an urban campground on a fenced lot in the city's core industrial area. The $4 million shelter, funded by a federal housing grant, provided a place for the homeless to take showers and sleep. But the main purpose of luring the homeless there was to clean up downtown L.A., making it friendlier to tourists and more attractive to businesses. It was Reardon's shelter plan that most directly inspired the DS9 writers. But in truth, neither of these programs actually reduced homelessness. At best, they just removed the problem from public view. But let's look at homelessness today. In the last 30 years, inequality has only gotten worse. California accounts for 30% of the nation's homeless population. However, there is a glimmer of hope that can be found in the reaction of political leaders. To address this crisis, a few mayors are attempting to implement more humane solutions to this issue. San Francisco current mayor, London Breed, has implemented her Housing for All plan. It's an ambitious idea to allow for 82,000 new homes to be built over the next eight years. Karen Bass, Los Angeles' most recent elected mayor, has implemented Inside Safe, a program that has removed the unhoused off the street and placed them in a hotel while they receive counseling, health care, and assistance to find work and move while moving into affordable housing. So here is our final thoughts. Because of the focus of homelessness and poverty, past tense parts one and two were described as an issue story and DCS9 was labeled politically correct by its critics. These terms were not meant as compliments. At the time of its broadcast, many fans were upset that a Star Trek series had shown a dystopian future rather than the technicolor utopia Gene Roddenberry fantasized about without ever offering any idea of how we got there. The two-parter generated critical attention to the show that it had not received before. Past Tense Parts 1 and 2 are two of the most political episodes in the Star Trek franchise. Without it, it's easy to see that the show's creative team might not have had the courage to tackle other episodes, such as In the Pale Moonlight or Far Beyond the Stars, which are two examples of why this series has held up so well over time, inviting multiple viewings. Yeah, I really love this episode. I love the story. I love the approach. Um, and it's, again, it's one of the best 
written Star Trek episodes ever. Written and acted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's just Carl. I mean, the one flaw in the entire thing is BC. Yeah, yeah. He's a stock he, figure. He's, he's just he, stock, yeah. Right. And, and, and he, there's and, nothing behind him. And, it, and his transformation at the oh. end, you know, where all of a sudden he understands, it just comes from nowhere. Yeah, we're first introduced to him as this predator, this violent predator who preys on the weak and affirmed in the Sanctuary District. And then somewhere between the two episodes, he becomes comic relief. And then he just dies. You know, it's just, it, but but that is the only mistake in this thing because right. the the identification of the problems and what causes the problems yes. and the ramifications of them all are played well and strong throughout the both episodes. Really true. So let's move on to Star Trek news, and and I'm up first. Mm-hmm. We have some news about the Star Trek. Section 31 film. According to trekmovie.com, the movie will be which stars Academy Award winner Michelle Yao is slated to begin production. The streaming movie event is scheduled to start filming on Monday, January 29th with a shooting schedule that's planned for 6 weeks. And then they're going to wrap wrap the whole thing up by March 13th. All right. That is an ambitious schedule. I know that's right. But I guess she got things to do. She does. <laughs> Originally, the Section 31 movie was to be filmed in the fall, but was delayed due to the double strikes. A script by Craig Sweeney was completed before the WGA strike began in early May. Discovery, producing director Alatunde Asunami is set to helm the project in Toronto using the stages formerly used by Discovery. The production will share some production crew and assets with Strange New Worlds, including the Pixamondo AR wall stage. There is no confirmed details about the story or even the time period for the film. So far, Yao is the only confirmed member of the cast. We're hoping to learn more information about the project as filming begins. Now we're going to look at uh, several award nominations. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Okay. First up are the Critics' Choice Awards. The television nominations were announced on December 5th by the Critics' Choice Association, and two Star Trek shows are being recognized. First up is the second season of Strange New Worlds, which has been nominated for two awards, including the biggest prize, Best Drama Series. Celia Rose Gooding, who plays Lieutenant Uhura, has also been nominated for Best Supporting Actress in a Drama Series. For the second year in a row, Star Trek Lower Decks was nominated for Best Animated Series. Last year, Lower Decks was the first ever show in the Star Trek franchise to be nominated for a Critics' Choice Award, but lost out to the series What If. The 29th Annual Critics' Choice Awards will air live on The CW Sunday, January 14th, 2024. Check your local listings for time. Next up are the Saturn Awards. Ah! 
On December 6, nominations for the 51st anniversary edition of the Saturn Awards were announced, and Star Trek Universe shows brought in a total of 15 nominations. Mm, that's interesting. According to TrekMovie.com, in many cases, different Star Trek actors and shows will be competing against each other in the same category, starting with Best Science Fiction Series, in which both Picard <coughs> and Strange New Worlds are nominated. The stars of both shows, Patrick Stewart and Anson Mount, also go head-to-head for the Best Actor in a Television Series. I wonder who has the... the Odds on favorite of winning that. Right, right. In the category for Best Supporting Actor, four of the seven nominees are from Picard and Strange New Worlds. Those actors are Jonathan Franks, Ethan Peck, Ed Spielers, and Todd Stashwick. So who are you rooting for in that category? Um, you know what? I think I really like Jonathan Franks, but I also actually like Todd Stashwood. You did, did you? I did. Mm. I did. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's you. (laughs) Three of the seven Best Actress nominees include Jess Bush, Celia Rose Gooding, and Jerry Ryan. They're all from Star Trek series. Who would you... Out of that group? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I like Celia Rose Gooding, but I don't think she had a standout episode I don't either. I agree with you. I agree with you. And... um, I couldn't stand Picard, so I'm going with Jess Bush. Okay. Well, she did. She did. She had a, she had a good story arc, and she yes. played it very well. Yes, she did. And so, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, I enjoyed it. And on top of that, I mean, I like Jerry Ryan, but Picard sucked. Okay. I'm going to, again, the third season, I will say that I did enjoy the first five episodes. I think our listeners know that. Okay. <laughs> Paul Wesley and Amanda Plummer are going up against each other in the best guest star category. Mm. But and I and I will admit Paul Wesley did grow on me as time went on. Yes, by the by the end of the season, he finally nailed it. But then Yeah, again, I think he found the character. Yeah, he did yeah. he found the character. Yeah. And I love Amanda Plummer in a lot of stuff. She's a very talented actress, but there was a whole lot of scene chewing. <laughs> a whole <laughs> lot of scene true. chewing. I agree with that. You know, there, I mean, there was. There was. Anyway, the animated series Lower Decks was also nominated for Best Animated Series and Star Trek The Motion Picture, the Director's Edition was nominated for Best 4K Home Media Release. Here's a question, Adele. Uh-huh. So, Star Trek, the motion picture, right. the director's edition. Robert Wise was the director of that film. Right. Stop me if I'm wrong. He's been dead oh, yeah. for several years, decades even. Right. So, who was overseeing the director's edition? Good good question. Good question. I'm just asking. I have no idea. I mean, he's also a former editor. So, if, if anybody was going to edit that film... And try to make the director's work look better. Yeah, it would have been him. It would have been but him. you know what? He is known for substantial notes because when he worked as the editor for um, what's the the Shakespeare, the American Shakespearean actor who did War of the Worlds, Orson Welles. When he was <laughs> when he was the right. um, editor for him, yeah. he wrote copious notes. Yeah. 
And so it could have been that he left those notes and a trusted assistant actually did the director's edition. I mean, I don't know. Okay, well, whatever. We won't find out right now. Okay, but we do want our listeners to know the Saturn Awards ceremony will be held on February 4th, 2024 and live streamed on the Electric Now platform, whatever that is. I don't have a clue as to what that <laughs> what is. It is. So I guess we're going to have to read about it the we'll day after. It, right, exactly. Next up, the Makeup Artists and Hairstylists Awards. According to a press release, Michael Westmore, Academy Award winning and Emmy Award winning makeup artist, will be honored for, with the esteemed Vanguard Award at the 11th Annual Makeup Artists and Hairstylists Awards. The gala will be held Sunday, February 18th, 2024. The Vanguard Award is presented to an individual who has made significant contributions to the makeup and hairstyling industry and has left a lasting impact on the craft. Westmore's talent, creativity, and dedication to his craft have earned him this prestigious honor. Westmore's illustrious career spans over five decades and has left an indelible mark on the entertainment industry. From the breathtaking beauty of Elizabeth Taylor to the bloody Rocky series to the Romulans in Star Trek, Westmore's artistry has captivated audiences and set the standard for makeup and hairstyling in film and television. The Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Scientists has honored him with four nominations and an Oscar in 1986 for his arts artistry of the film Mask. He's received a record 45 Emmy nominations, bringing home nine statuettes. In regards to the Star Trek universe, according to Wikipedia, Westmore was hired in 1986 to work on Star Trek The Next Generation and would go on to work on Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. During his time on the shows, he developed the makeup for several alien races, including the Ferengi, Cardassians, Jim Hadar, and further developed the makeup used on Klingon characters. One of his first roles was the development of the makeup used on Brent Spiner to create the character Data. He left the Star Trek Enterprise in 2005 following the cancellation of Enterprise. Now let's move on to another worthy recipient of an honorary award, Ora T. Green. According to Hollywood Reporter, the Makeup Artists and Hairstylists Guild's awards ceremony will also bestow a Lifetime Achievement Award on Aura T. Green, an Emmy-nominated hairstylist whose work has included such films as Star Trek Nemesis and Blade. In 1977, Green joined Union Local 706 at the suggestions of a girlfriend. She considered herself a late bloomer when she started working professionally at the age of 36. Most stylists were in their late 20s. She began working on Norman Lear-produced sitcoms such as Maud, Good Times, and One Day at a Time. In 1986, she went to work on the evening soap opera Dynasty. Green was twice nominated by the Primetime Emmy Awards for her work on Path of War and Frank's Place. She transitioned into feature films and TV movies, and her credits include the before-mentioned Star Trek Nemesis and Blade, as well as 13 Days, Hook, and Wayne's World 2. 
now retired, the Gill credits Green as a trailblazing African-American woman who helped open doors for other women. Yeah, that's uh, that's remarkable. That's pretty, pretty good. That's pretty good. You know, especially since even today, there still is a lack of, of hairstylists who know how to deal with black hair. Right, right. In fact, that has been an issue for the last 15 years in regards to a number of black actresses on shows really requesting somebody who can right. be attentive to their hair, the hair texture and their styles. Right. Some have even said they had to go to their own hairstylists or barbers to right. get their hair that's done. That's right. That's right. So, so hopefully those things are improving, but um, it's good to see that they're recognizing somebody who was a trailblazer. Correct. So in closing, we'll be back in two weeks with a deeper dive into season three when we discuss the honorable mentions for this series. We thought about adding them onto this episode, but we think that there's some benefit in giving the honorable mentions some attention because of how important season three is yes. to the to the development of, of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, it's a pivotal season. It is really a pivotal, and we'll talk about that and why. Um, and so that's um, Improbable Causes and The Die is Cast, another two-part storyline right. um, for the season. These episodes represent, you know, uh, an arc that built on character development and information that had been presented previously in other seasons. Before we sign off, we would like to remind you to share a link to Age of Discovery with people you know who enjoy Star Trek as well. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a comment over on iTunes for us. It can help us with attracting attention with new listeners. Until that time... Like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on X, Threads, and Instagram at Star Trek AOD. On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Star Trek AOD. And at our website, Star Trek AOD.net where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues, and other aspects of the show. Also, email the show at StarTrekAOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper.